What's up, everyone? This is Peter Neal from GSP REI, and you're listening to the Real Estate Investing On Point Podcast. This podcast is designed to help both active and passive real estate investors take their real estate investing game to the next level so that you can grow a successful real estate investing business or find out what to look for when you're investing passively in a real estate investment business. Let's get right into it. Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of the Real Estate Investing On Point Podcast. I'm Peter Neal here with Ron Lockhart and Wade Carroll. Episode hasn't even started and we're already having a fun time. What's going on, gentlemen? We got a little snow here today. <laughs> yeah, we did. I, what about that? It's uh, it's sticking too. It's on the ground and the trees. And is it going to be a white Christmas? Is that? I don't know. We've had snow three times already this week. Yeah. We, yeah. we didn't have snow once last year. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. But it was 50 degrees by the end of the day yesterday. So, yeah, we'll see. Wade, you're probably getting a lot of snow out your way, or has it yeah, started it's, yet? It's, or you... it's opening day up in uh, Whitefish today, so first day of the uh, ski mountains open. Okay. So, okay. and you're not there. Know, what the heck? Yeah, well, work. I won't be there Saturday either. Which sucks. But... Is that uh, oops? So I got what my skis they... waxed though. Oh, there you go. So, there you go. I'm ready. Already. Is opening day, is that a, usually a pretty big deal? A lot of people come out? Yeah, usually. A lot of kids skip school. Uh, some some schools do half days. <clears throat> but we've been worried about the volume of snow. It's been pretty low. I, I was worried they wouldn't be able to open today. But we got like 18 inches last week. So, wow. I guess that was enough. 53-inch base right now. Wow, that's amazing. Do you ever skip school? Oh man, all the time. The, the, <laughs> the key is uh, you got to be tight with the attendance lady. Absolutely. That's, that's how you pull it off. Yeah. But yeah, we would wake up at six, check the snow report and tell your ride. And if it was good, we're throwing the skis in the back of the truck on the way to school. Yeah. I, I had perfect cool. attendance, up, like grade school and high school. Did you never skip the day? Well, my mom was a teacher, so there was no there was no oh. skip in school. Um, That's a bummer. Yeah, it didn't happen. So we, we had the what do you mean the, the attendance lady? What? Because uh, we had like in, in our school, every period took attendance. So there was no I mean, you could be there for homeroom, but you also had to be every every single one, every class you took, they took attendance and that would make yeah. its way down to the office, you know? Yeah, but if you don't show up for homeroom, there's an attendance lady in the office and they let her, she takes the notes when people are sick or the calls in. Yeah. Our, our our attendance lady, her name was Miss Thomas, Mrs. Thomas. She was the nicest lady and I used to call her and say, Mrs. Thomas, I'm really not feeling well today. She said, honey, you just stay home. You get some rest. Ferris Bueller right there. I, I'd, I'd be at the movies. I'd be nine out. times. So, so did you get counted as a as a day off, or like uh, they they would count as the rest of the day? I was right? sick. I was sick. Okay. She marked me as sick. Oh, okay, okay. And not like uh, what is that? Is it truancy? What do they call that when you oh. you don't go to school? It's an unexcused absence. Ah, there you go. Okay. I don't think I ever had any unexcused. They were always excused. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. 
So what are you, are you into a white Christmas? Are you guys, uh, what's your thoughts on that? You like to see snow coming down and you wake Absolutely. up to it. Yeah. I feel like owning real estate has changed my opinion on snow. When I was little, I actually just had this conversation with someone earlier today. Yeah, snow, it's exciting. But like, yeah, you own property and then you think about shoveling and slip and falls and all that kind of stuff. Ron, what's your what's your thoughts on that? I think if you you set up your lease the right way, <laughs> you're not out there shoveling it yourself. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. That's something I kind of learned early on it, with, with the duplex. You don't know, you know, who's who should you make responsible, who uh, who doesn't want to be responsible, that kind of thing. So it's like important to have a tenant that is willing to do it and you can work something out and, you know, give make it a, worth worth it for each party. Yeah, give them a small reduction on rent each month to do certain maintenance items. Yeah, that's what I do. So looks like it snowed on your face there, Ron. What uh, you're uh, growing the beard out a little bit there, or a little bit? We'll, we'll see how long it goes. I have to go to a Christmas party on Saturday and see if my wife lets me keep it. Okay, I'll say. So uh, Christmas party. What uh, what do you have to do for the Christmas party? Are you you bringing gifts? Know. Is there a, I, a white I, elephant or no? There's three this weekend. There's one Friday night. And two Saturday night. And the second one is a uh, combination Christmas party, 40th birthday party. Gotcha. I don't, I don't want to go to any of them. <laughs> I always feel bad for the people who, the, you know, the birthday falls right around the Christmas time. My dad's birthday is January 12th. Yeah, <laughs> you just, you don't get treated the same, right? When you have the Christmas and you got the birthday, you're not, not going to get as many presents no matter how hard the parents try, right? I don't know. My daughter's December 27th and she seems, she seems to make out every year. She's making yeah. out a double. Yeah. So I don't think she ever suffered, <laughs> but you can ask her that question. We'll have to have her guest guest on the podcast life with Ron. She can, she can answer a lot of questions for us. So uh, Wade, you're coming off of a, uh, a big Heckam HUD trade beds were due. We talked about this last week. Give us an update on uh, what's going on there. Yeah, they sent out or they made all the award calls yesterday. And I, I would say, I mean, we're happy, right? Because you don't want to get skunked. And I've been skunked before. So you always go into the auction with a bit of trepidation. Um, I'm seldom confident. That bothers me. <laughs> Uh, it's just so <laughs> So clarify for us when you say skunked, what, what exactly do you mean? And, uh, why aren't you confident? <laughs> well, like, I mean, in see what 2022, we bid 500 loans in one twenty two. I consider that a skunk. That's okay. less than one. That's for, for the whole year. 365. No, no, no. Just for that one auction. Just for that one. Auction. Okay. Okay. What's. <laughs> A little surreal, I guess, about that is that two months later, there was another auction and uh, same thing, 500 bids and we won 22 again. So I, I don't know if because two in a row that that disappointment is stamped on my head or in my brain that I don't know. You just never know who's going to show up, how hard they're going to bid. And, and, and auctions are a little bit difficult because uh, you're, you're never going to outbid an, an idiot. And I'd like to think at this level, there's not that many idiots, but 
I don't know. <clears throat> Maybe I'm the idiot because I, I don't know. But it, it seems like to me that in an auction, the winner is the guy that cares least about the future. Like he's only optimistic. Like he has no concerns whatsoever, interest rates, appreciation, nothing. And it's hard to beat that guy, whoever it is. I think it's Condor, frankly. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Calling them out by name. Um, it should. seems it seems to be. Well, they a, changed uh, they changed their name, and I never remember it. So, ah, okay. People, people know. <laughs> they always win everything. So, it seems but we did okay. We underperformed our average, uh, but we we did buy 142 properties, which is. So, and you, when will you have the data back and all that kind of stuff to to start to make decisions for next go? Well, we're we're trying to get the deposit wire out now, and I'm assuming as soon as they have our money, I'll I'll get a list. But I've not seen it. I don't know what 142 properties we want. So, for the audience, you know, so you buy 142 properties. They're in. They're on the first position. Uh, they're all Heckam loans. Borrowers deceased on 100 percent of them. I'm assuming. Um, what does, what does it look like? What do you do from there? Well, we've already ordered title. We'll order, we haven't already ordered title. We will be ordering title as soon as we get the addresses. So that's one of the first things we do. Um, then we dig through it that way, but it, uh, you send out the hello, goodbye letters, which is odd that we do that for Heckam's because we already know that the borrower is not living, uh, and no one's in the house and they're not going to the estate because nobody knows who that is yet. But it's a requirement, so we send those out. But there's uh, several preset dates once you acquire the loans that certain things have to be done. But but usually within 90 days, we, we start foreclosure on everybody. And usually that starts bringing the estates out of the woodwork, approaching us, calling, because they don't, they, don't, they don't understand or, you know, want a foreclosure on the record and which it doesn't, it really doesn't affect the estate, but it does give us an opportunity to reach out to people. But with the Heckums, it's pretty fast. I mean, you're, you're moving very fast on the Heckums. So what else is, is new uh, guys reading any interesting articles or any interesting news or anything happening in the market you think is worth uh, noting? Anything interesting happening in the market? Talk to um, us, Ron. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like every day I see a, a new article on single family being the primary focus or a big focus, single family rentals, whether it be institutional funds, private equity, whatever it may be. Um, I, I feel like every day I'm seeing another article. It's really coming into focus more and more. I mean, obviously we've already been focused on it, but it's getting a lot more attention. It seems like in the last couple weeks, last month or so, there has been a an uptick in articles around the opportunity in single family rentals. I just sent an email out uh, just before we started recording. It was an article from Moody's Analytics, the superstar of today and tomorrow, growth and opportunity in the single family rental market. Uh, talks about, you know, one of the quotes that I, I grabbed out of it for the email was, from the ashes of rapid and somewhat unpredictable change, a phoenix has time and again risen single family rentals. Um, so I thought that was a pretty cool thing. You know, it's it's always we say it all the time, like you said, Ron, but to kind of 
see other news sources saying it and providing a bunch of data and research and, and information like that around why it's becoming more and more of a um, of a topic and something institutions are looking at. They've earmarked billions of dollars for it in the in the scattered site, but also in the in the bill to rank communities, um, something that we were talking about. We certainly have an interest in. But um yeah, it's it definitely I've been saying this forever to our investors. You know, now is the time to invest in single family rentals. And I think Wade, you brought up a point that was it seems we're we're pretty polarized right now. There's some people I talk to who they they really they want to invest. They're they think there's a lot of opportunity. They're seeing a lot of opportunity either with single family rentals or and on the lending side, you know, short term bridge, mezzanine type lending, that kind of thing. Uh, but also a lot of opportunity with like the savior capital in the multifamily world with preferred equity deals and things like that. And then you have these other people who are just like they're they're just totally on the sidelines 100 percent. They don't want to really get invested in anything right now. Um, so what's what's your guys's uh, opinion on on this? And where would you say in the scale of aggressive opportunity wise to sit back, do nothing? You know, so, something's going to happen here, either from a recession or some major collapse or something like that. Uh, I know we've talked about this before, but as more information comes out and as the days go on, you know, it's always interesting to check back in and see what are you seeing today and why do you feel the way you feel? And I'll kind of kick it off too. It just seems like it comes back to demand over and over again. And all of these articles for single family and the opportunity in single family, it just seems like, and we talked about this last week, there was the Freddie Mac research that kind of, it came out, it wasn't these Wall Street giants who were buying up single families that massively increased pricing and all. Not that I'm sure that was was certainly a part of it. And in certain markets, I'm sure it was that was a part of it. But overall, it was just the the low supply, the high demand, uh, the low interest rates, you know, COVID, people working from home, having more flexibility, uh, moving around, looking for more space. Like there's just been all these factors, but it seems like it just keeps coming back to the, the sheer demand and the low supply. Um, so, cause I think a lot of investors are looking for what do they do right now? And I mean, and, and I, I think foundationally going back to supply and demand is, is a smart thing to do when you're looking for, you know, what do you make a decision? Same thing with, with, with these preferred equity deals. And I mean, there's demand for those types of deals because people have apartments and, and deals that need that kind of rescue capital to get them through to the next stage. So, what, what are you guys thinking? What I thought was quite striking is they they pointed to the, the top performing markets mm. and the bottom performing markets. And that all of your big institutional investors, I thought they said like, they're like in of the 10 worst performing markets, they're in like nine of them or yeah. maybe all 10 of them or something. And of the better performing markets, they're almost in none of them. <laughs> yeah. They're in three out of the 10. Yeah. So I think that's compelling. You know, they pointed to some, what was it like Rochester or something as one of the top markets? Nobody's in it. Yes. Nobody's, Nobody's in there. No, the, the top five, the top uh, one, two, three, four, five, uh, the top five. Yeah. Nobody's in the top five. And yeah. just for the listener, we're talking about a Moody's analytics article 
that came out uh, September 14, 2023. Um, something there was a, a Fortune um, article that just came out a week or two ago that kind of referenced this article a lot. And the title of the article is The Superstar of Today and Tomorrow Growth and Opportunity in the Single Family Rental Market. And they, they have a, a list of the top 10 highest uh, grossing yield uh, SFR markets and then the top uh, the bottom 10. And they make it real clear with, with the way it's presented with institutional presence in those markets. <laughs> and they're nearly in, looks like they're in nine out of 10 of the bottom and they're in three out of 10 in the top markets. So very, very interesting. I, I when I was reading that, that was definitely something that stood out as well. I'm, I'm curious how they calculate some of these things because we're beating all those numbers. Yeah. When, when you talk about gross yield and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I, I know what you mean. So I'm, um, I mean, we're beating all these and I'd say we're beating them handily, but Baltimore's not on here. Neither is Philadelphia. Yeah. So anyway, it's curious, I, but I think it's curious. It's showing then in the, the top performing that Chicago's in there with the Chicago tax property tax base. I'm that's very surprising to me. And that also there's institutional investors in Chicago yeah. from an SFR perspective. That seems really, I mean, I would love to have rentals in Chicago, but man, the property taxes just eat you alive. So Chicago's come up in a bunch of articles as yeah, one of the top markets. And they've been mentioned quite a bit. Yeah. It was interesting too, because Baltimore and Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, which did come up on this, um, Baltimore and Philadelphia came up on an article that we were throwing around a couple weeks yeah. ago. Right. Um, and it was it was more about it didn't have that uh, that hockey stick type, you know, it didn't have the massive appreciation and then a pullback. It's been more of that steady growth, uh, which you, I think you see in a lot of these mid-Atlantic markets where they didn't have this massive migration of people like the Sun Belt did. So they didn't have this massive tick up in rents and, and uh, things like that. Over the last couple of years with COVID, the, you know, these areas are just more kind of just steady, steady growth in the long term. We've talked about that a lot, even before. I mean, you know, a year ago, we were talking about that, that the markets we were in, that we're invested in, like a Philadelphia or a Baltimore, never had that hockey stick appreciation, you know, and it's it makes you feel more comfortable seeing steady growth. As opposed to, uh, you know, popping up, leveling off, and in some cases, pulling back a touch. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So after reading that, I feel like we should be, uh, it's good that we're in the markets we are in. It's also good that the big boys aren't there yet. Maybe they won't be. But we should take advantage of that opportunity. I think it's really hard for the big companies, the big institutional investors to go in to those metropolitan markets, it's different, you know, um, for a number of different reasons. You know, the the management of the assets is different than buying in suburban areas of the Sunbelt. You know, it's just, it's two totally different worlds. Um, and there's a lot of articles out there that talk about why the larger institutions focus on those markets like the Sunbelt. You know, the, the price point from an entry standpoint, the type of product it is you know you're seeing more and more build the rent now because they need to do it at a greater scale you know it'd be hard to go into a city like like baltimore 
and buy 15,000 properties. They're heavy rehab properties. They're not, you know, low value add where you just need to put, you know, $15,000 into it. In most cases, you're putting $100,000 where, you know, you, of your total cost of the property between acquisition and 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 development, you know, you're talking about you're putting 90% of that number into the property. You know, your acquisition cost is about 10% of it. So yeah, it's a completely, completely different model. I think it's something that we're just at the cusp of it now. I, I think it's it's the beginning stages. There are, I think there's like three institutions that focus that have an affordable focus. Um, so, you know, when you look at like the big players, uh, Invitation Homes, Progressive, American Homes for Rent, you know, they uh, Tricon, they certainly do not have a affordable workforce um, housing type focus. Uh, now, there are a, 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 just a handful. I think it's less. I think it's three. I think it's less than five that have, you know, 10,000 units all within that kind of affordable and, and workforce housing, you know, where property values are under 200, 250, rents are under around 1600 or so. Um, so, yeah, it's certainly it's certainly not a space that they've gravitated towards as they've initially got into single family. But I think with that's where the opportunity is. So I, I think there's going to be more and more of a focus on it in the years to come. And um, I've been reading articles and ha having conversations with some of these more institutional and private equity, you know, backed type investors and investment platforms. And I don't think there's an institution in the real estate world that hasn't in some way looked at single family in, in the U.S. It just seems like uh, if you're investing in real estate institutionally, single family is one of those things that it's on everybody's radar right now, whether they're doing it or not. Chances are they've researched it and are looking into it. Would you agree with that, Wade, especially since you're you you have your your capital partner on the note side and you know you have these kinds of conversations and it seems like over the years SFR has come more into the forefront and and there's more they're more open to it than they were you know a couple of years ago i don't that's hard for me to answer because i've only ever done SFR like outside of a few hotels but but clearly it's it's more commonplace so i guess it would have to be true because when we're first raising capital you know, 2005 or so talking about a you know a fairly large rental portfolio of single families that that was unusual certainly unusual pre 2008 right so but yeah i would agree with that 2008 kind of created the opportunity and we've talked exactly just a bunch of times i mean it's that that's where the major shift took place i just want to go back to something where, you know when you talk about affordable housing. You know, everybody's definition of that is not the same. When you hear discussions about affordable housing in the the media, you know, on the national news networks, uh, I remember seeing a piece not that long ago, um, Lenar Homes was starting what they called an affordable housing development in Texas. And the price point was over $400,000. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of companies when they're talking about, oh, we're, you know, we're addressing affordable housing, you're not really addressing affordable housing. You know, <laughs> you, you, it's like, you know, I guess to a certain extent, it's a relative term. It's affordability. I think there was an article out there recently that said to, to own a home, 
today when interest rates hit eight percent, you needed to, the combined household income, I think, had to be over a hundred thousand dollars. Like that's you know, that that's where affordability is gone. But you know, truly when we look at our definition of affordable housing and workforce housing, which is really the biggest problem, you know, it's not four hundred, five hundred thousand dollar homes, it's homes that are $150,000 to $250,000. Like that's where our biggest gap is. You know, another reason why, you know, the rental market continues to be strong and getting stronger is we're just not filling the void at all. Or and I shouldn't say yeah. at all. In any uh, meaningful way. I don't know that I've ever considered a $400,000 house uh, affordable, but yeah, back when you could get interest rates at two and a half and 3%, you're like, well, maybe it was affordable. Yeah. <laughs> it's not anymore, whatever, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's crazy. One of the stats I've been talking about a lot lately, it's, it, and I have it actually written next to me, uh, less than 4% of new homes constructed are sold for under $200,000. So when you think Four? about like- Don't you said 4%? Less than 4% of, of new construct, newly constructed homes are selling for under $200,000. So, and that that's looking at nationwide data. Yeah, I mean, so you think of some of these markets, they have like no no homes under 200,000 yeah. that are being constructed. Um, so I, I've kind of been saying it, you know, in conversation where it's like single family affordable workforce type housing properties under 200, under 250 thousand you know starter homes is another kind of word that you'd hear thrown around like these are becoming like a like a rare asset like they're not making any more of them um so the opportunity is to is to to revitalize existing and there are certainly areas where you can find you know blighted properties and properties that need that full you know kind of renovation and to ron's point from an institutional perspective you know that certainly takes a uh, it takes a certain knowledge and a certain skill set and a certain team to be able to go into those types of areas and revive and buy it enough volume and then revitalize lease and manage or, or you know, strategically sell assets off and things like that. Um, so which can kind of lead to the question like and we've, we've talked about this before, but, you know, what it, what do you think it is that like that 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 you need to have in order to be successful in that space? Like, cause you know, what is it that the institutions would you think are lacking in or why they don't go after that or, or what it may be? And, you know, what is it like that we do at GSP that's different? Ron, I asked the question to you. Well, I mean, I think, you know, for, for institutions to do anything, they need to, for the most part, they need to be able to do it with scale and their timelines are very different than I think a lot of other other people and other companies when they're looking at um, an investment. So to 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 execute in those markets at scale is is tough. It's not like they can go buy, you know, fifty acres, you know, in a metropolitan area. It doesn't work that way. Um, it's hard to get contiguous pro- enough contiguous properties to to have something make sense. So I think that's um, a roadblock right out of the gate. It's also the cost, you know, to do it at a smaller scale. I, I don't think it really makes sense for them, you know, our, because, uh, because we're vertically integrated, we have, we handle our construction, we handle our property management, we handle our, our asset management all in house. 
you know, our our margins are better. You know, it costs us less to do the same project that it would cost somebody who isn't handling those things in-house. So, you know, I think that's where we have an advantage. Um, it also allows us, we don't have to go buy $100 million of property right out of the gate or or come up with a development plan for $100, $150 million uh, right out of the gate. It just, it's just very different. And a lot of those big firms had uh, mandates for what type of property. Uh, a lot of them, they, they only wanted slab. They wanted like 1984 and newer stuff like that. Well, not too many 1984 newer properties in downtown Baltimore. You know, so yeah. it's very, the, their own internal box was so restrictive that it pretty much put them in the South. The Florida's, the Texas, That's a good point. The Alabama's. Georgia. Yeah. I actually kind of leads into to the question I was going to ask for you, Wade. It was, you, we were talking about built to rent communities. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons institutions have gravitated towards that is kind of what Ron's saying. It's, they can go out and they can buy a tract of land. They can develop and, you know, hundred units or whatever it may be. So they can spend more money and they can have that scale. So it kind of fits that side, but it also fits the side that you're talking about right now, where now they have a newly constructed home, uh, less maintenance repairs. And, and it fits in that box that they have. What is it? I, you know, we've been talking about built to rent communities and, and the opportunity there. Um, it sounds like, there's going to build to run communities. I've read an article recently like that. It's going to have an effect on just, you know, because now more home builders are building build to rent communities instead of build for sale, you know, properties. So it's going to be, there's more, there's going to be more product that comes online, but it's going to be more of the rental product and not so much of the sale product. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic there. Um, What, what attracts you to that? that space, Wade? A lot of those same things, but I mean, it's one thing to talk about build for rent, uh, you know, in buying a large tract of land, but I like the idea on vacant blocks in downtown Baltimore, places right like that. There's, you know, the land banks down there will almost give you that kind of property. So I like the idea of just stacking them all up on one half of a block, however many you can fit, because they're not going to be there. These institutional competitors, they won't be there. Now, if we, because we've talked about doing this in the Carolinas, they're probably there. They're likely there. Definitely. Not that we can't try to compete with them, but uh, I just feel like we have a little bit of a bird's nest on the ground in some of these markets that we're in where the big guys aren't playing and they may never play. So that's why it's attractive to me. But But yeah, I think that makes sense. And that's definitely a a different angle when it comes to, you know, kind of not wanting to compete in the institutional space or trying to find something different and, and really go to where the demand is and, and, you know, markets that we're kind of, we're already in and have some, you know, have those boots on the ground and you have the experience in those markets. Well, and if you think about the, the construction complexities of what we do, where you're you're buying a thirty thousand dollar unit and spending ninety grand on a renovation, that's a lot more complicated than new construction. New new construction. I, I've never done new construction, so I'm a little bit ignorant. But I'm sure Ron can back me up on this. Most things are predetermined in a, in new construction, you, you've already got all your bids. You know what the concrete's going to be. You, you know what the dirt work's going to be. 
you know how many sticks you're going to need versus when you break into a, a home that was built in 1919, you have no idea what you're going to find when you start tearing out walls. And, and uh, I'm assuming that's a lot more complicated to do a big, heavy renovation that includes new wire, you know, new plumbing in an existing structure versus doing it from the ground up. There's a lot more unknowns in a heavy renovation than new construction. Am I, am I wrong? No, I mean, new construction is a lot more predictable. Um, and it's not like we're talking about a custom build here that's $5 million where, you know, the house may be 10,000 square feet. You know, we're, we're talking about very basic construction. It's predictable. It's cookie cutter. Um, to your point earlier, you know, you, you're building these on slabs. You're not excavating big basements. Um, you know, in some cases you can even utilize modular, you know, when you're doing this, when it's, when you're basically building a box. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot easier. It's a lot more predictable. Um, you tend to have a lot less surprises for sure. You know, when, when we look at buying one of those houses from the 1919s or, or the teens or the 1920s, we're, um, you know, we're assuming you have to do everything, but it doesn't change the fact that you run into surprises all the time. Yeah, that was the first thing that came to mind for me was as long as you can get it at the right price point and you can go under the assumption that everything needs to get changed, then then that's a good that's an advantage to buying property like that. Um, as we're talking about institutions and and the opportunities and, and the single family space and all, there was an article we passed around a little bit ago. Ron, I know we talked about it. Wait, I'm not sure if you saw this one come through. It was about an institution that had uh, had become credit worthy. It was it was rated in some of these credit bureaus and all, and they were doing like a, a sublease. They were they were doing a lease and then uh, and then subleasing all of their properties to the individual tenants and then sell like packaging it up and selling it to a, an institution or you know a large investor as single family as like a triple net opportunity remember this uh, article Ron we talked about yeah they basically had a master lease on the whole portfolio yeah so I, I thought that was a very very interesting and and uh new angle to the SFR space, something I've never seen done before. What's your thoughts on that? Do you think that's something, and wait, did you see that article or I know you've been pretty busy the last couple of weeks that you might've missed that one. No, uh, no I, I didn't. But uh, when we did our, our first, when we accumulated our 600 rental houses in Houston, it was, they were all on a master lease. We did the same thing. We made some mistakes in it, but uh that's what we did too. We sold the properties and then leased them all right back. Took over the management. So what? What's that's your? True. Yeah, like what? And and I'm looking at this from a from like a on like a selling it to an investor. Right? I mean, so packaging up that portfolio, then selling it to the investor. That investor is looking at it as now I have a triple net. Uh, this is a triple net opportunity here and they're and and they're going to take care of everything uh and anything they make above you know the the uh whatever their their lease is i mean that's that's theirs to keep you know i mean that that kind of thing um right. that makes sense so 
what's your thought? You think that's going to be a, a game changer in, in the SFR space and in the institutional space when it comes to uh, single family portfolios? You think, you know, what's what was your initial thought on that? Because I thought that was a pretty interesting, you know, institutions and those types of investors love triple net and, you know, they don't have to do anything. And, uh, you know, they have a one of the things I think turn off to single family sometimes is the tenants and, uh, you know, are they credit worthy or not? And, you know, we, we, we do a lot of section eight, which is something, you know, we, we like, and we know our investors like, you know, when you have a, a lease, you know, with that's uh, federally, you know, the federal government's paying the, uh, the, the rent. Um, so something like this is, you know, this changes, changes up the, uh, the dynamic a little bit. So what's your thoughts on it? You think that's here to stay? You think you're going to see more of it? Um, what was your initial take? I think, I mean, I there, think there were benefits to it. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think you've got to, ha- first of all, it has to make economic sense, right? So I, I think whoever is, whoever is selling the portfolio and is, is responsible for that master lease you know, you better be, I, I, I think you have to be in a pretty conservative market to do that. I, I my, my guess would be their margins aren't fantastic. You know, they're looking to get, they're acquiring these properties. They're probably redeveloping them to a certain extent, stabilizing and selling them. My guess is the margin isn't huge and it's definitely not huge between what they're making or for what they're making over and above the, what they're paying the investor. You know, I, I could see that with large companies with with lower return hurdles. Um, I, ju- I just have a hard time believing that the margins are, fin- are, are real good on that. And again, I think you got to be in a very conservative geographic market as opposed to something that could be perceived as risky. Because I think despite the creditworthiness of that company, the investor is going to want to be comfortable with what the the demog- the, geog- the geography of these properties are. I just I, I, my guess is that it's not the returns aren't fantastic, but I could be very wrong about that. You mean for the operator? For the operator, yeah. well, I would think if the operator if if they can get a a pretty low cap rate being that it's you know a triple net opportunity and the buyer the investor doesn't need to do anything at all you know i mean that they could be getting a pretty favorable price on the portfolio compared to if they just sold it as a portfolio or you know something like that yeah i mean i think they're making some decent money on the front end it's the yeah. ongoing yeah the ongoing yeah, yeah the, the the difference between what they're collecting and what they need to pay on on their master lease and then um and that see i think in the article it said that there would be increases in that lease over time and also they're making some assumptions around the uh, around the markets that they're in and that the rents are going to keep increasing and all that kind of stuff so that's a good point you got to get to take into consideration whoever has that master lease to be credit worthy for something like that. You know, you're limiting the pool of players. You know, if you're doing that with any sort of size, you know, say it's I don't, I don't remember how many properties were in that off the top of my head. I think it I think say, the one that the article talked about, it was I think it was pretty sizable. I think it was twenty million dollar portfolio, something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so they also talked about doing smaller uh, portfolios as well. 
but uh, you know to to be responsible for that you know somebody's creditworthiness has to be up there sure yeah because we're not we're not even talking about obviously financing here i mean that's like uh what somebody would look at for a, a you know a big anchor tenant or something like that yeah what are you thinking wade well you look like you're in deep thought there <laughs> no i'm i just i, I feel uh I should have read the article. I'm not sure which one you're talking about. <laughs> I was scrolling through my text and trying to find it. Yeah, I, I, I could. I think it was probably two weeks ago that we that I sent that over. But I'm assuming it it was a, a situation where the operator was paying the investors a fixed rate of return, right? And then he had no, a master the, lease. The, no, the, the they're no. selling. They're the operator has a master lease, and they're selling the portfolio to to an investor. And then, so that investor now owns that portfolio and the portfolio has a master lease with the operator. The operator is going to to manage, you know, do all the tenant, all leasing, changeover, turnover, all, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, anything that they collect above and beyond their master lease, uh, they, they pocket that. Um, I don't know if, yeah, I would think that that would be it. You know what I mean? So they're getting, probably getting a favorable price. I would think on the portfolio, selling it as a triple net. Um, I would, I'm not sure what the cap rate was, but I would think it would be, would be favorable. And then. Well, just, I mean, here's something else to think about if, you know, being a triple net lease, the insurance, we're in, we're in a, 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 a real estate interest or um, insurance environment that's becoming somewhat more unpredictable depending upon where you are geographically mm-hmm. like you know anything coastal florida like i mean it's going through the roof you know you've got to be pretty you got to be pretty confident in what's going to happen from a tax standpoint you know with property tax because there are going to be a lot of assessments i mean when, when it's a triple net and also i mean how many years was the least do you remember ah, i want to say the 20 matter- I mean, that's a long time, you know, so, you know, there's a lot of variables in there over the, over that 20 year period. Sure. Um, So I I think that that's got to be for a pretty specialized group of operators, you know, for the investor, you know, if, if the economics are good, sure. It's clear they're, they're eliminating a lot of that risk by, you know, like their variables for the insurance and the taxes and whatnot that all, falls on the operator i just you know i'd love to know what the actual cap rate was yeah we'll have to look it up i i didn't want to try digging for it now but uh i'll have to look it up get to the article and uh get some of those specifics there's a lot can go wrong there for over 20 years sure yeah ours was uh we we paid the investor a fixed rate and then we did a master lease back over all those properties and uh but the but the term was much shorter. We gave him a three year and a five year option, <clears throat> and we would advance any construction costs, any any make readies, any maintenance. We'd advance it all. But the idea was, at the end of the three or five year term, they'd refinance and remunerate our costs. And the the problem was the the first five year stint was two thousand and eight. So the first handful of guys that were due to do a refinance, they'd already filed bankruptcy because of whatever other real estate they had going on in California or Nevada or whatever. 
So it became a, a big, ugly mess on our side because at that point we didn't really control the assets outside of a master lease, but all of our guys were getting foreclosed on through their other business activities, I guess. But so we never got repaid. We'd advanced millions of dollars over a five-year period on 600 units and disappeared. So yeah, there's a, there's some risk to that for sure. Hmm. It's yeah, definitely an interesting concept and uh, it kind of, I think, speaks to the demand and the opportunity in the SFR space that this is even a a thing, you know, and, and that uh, potentially another vertical to get in. And um, there's there's been a lot of there's a lot of new verticals and we've looked at some of them when it comes to investment platforms and things like that and fractionalizing and all. But I feel like we've definitely talked about a lot of topics for today. Um, let's pick it up next week and maybe we'll talk about some of those some of those other SFR opportunities and platforms when it comes to funds and and fractionalization and private lending. And let's talk about all that kind of stuff next week. I think that'll be a fun conversation. So we always appreciate you joining us and taking the time out of your day to listen. Until next time, for myself, Ron and Wade, we appreciate you. And uh, if you have any questions or need anything from us, always feel free to reach out. So until next time, thank you very much. Well, there you have it. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing On Point podcast. Be sure to subscribe and join us live on one of our virtual meetups. You can find more information on our website at gsprei.com. That's gsprei.com. Thank you again and God bless. We'll look forward to catching you on the next one.